Well, good morning. It's a joy to be back this morning to gather together for worshiping our trying God and to be able to examine the gospel of John again, that glorious gospel that proclaims the deity and excellency of our Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you to turn with me to the gospel of John as we look to get started. John chapter 1, picking up right where we left off from last week. John chapter 1 and verses 14 to 18 will be our text of study this morning, and that will wrap up that first section that historically theologians have regarded as the prologue or the introduction to John's gospel. So please follow along with me in those verses of John's gospel. John chapter 1, verses 14, reading to verse 18. I'll be reading our text out of the New American Standard Bible. Please follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John writes, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of His fullness... We have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. This is the word of the living God. May He write its eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. Today's lesson brings us to the final five verses recorded in the opening section of John's Gospel, which, as I mentioned by way of introduction, this focuses specifically on the deity of Jesus Christ. And what I mean by deity is Jesus as God. That is what is being captured in this section of John's Gospel, particularly and broadly. This is the central theme of the Gospel of John. You'll recall last week, that we covered John's purpose statement found in verse 31 of chapter 20. Remember what I said last week that in the first century era, those who would write a letter or those who would write a document, they would put their purpose statement at the end of that document, whereas today we tend to put our purpose statement or our thesis statement at the beginning of that document. John chapter 20 and verse 31, this is the primary reason why John wrote this gospel, and this permeates the totality of what he says from start to finish. Verse 31 of chapter 20, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Why is that significant? Why, do I, why have I brought you all back to this verse over the past two weeks? Well, my friends, if we're going to study this gospel in accordance with with how John has intended for it to be understood. If we're going to read the Gospel of John as John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would have us to do so, we need to make sure that we have this purpose statement at the forefront of our attention. And what was that ultimate goal that John had in mind? What was that purpose for writing this Gospel? John wants us to know that Jesus is the Messiah prophesied throughout the Old Testament. He wants us to know that Jesus is the Son of God by virtue of being the second person of the eternal trinity. And John wants us to know that through Jesus Christ and Him alone, sinners can have everlasting life by trusting in Him. And that's ultimately why we're here today. I trust that 
all of you have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, or at least are seeking after Christ, we are here today to worship the living God because of what Jesus has done for sinners like you and me. And that's exactly why John wrote this gospel. He wants us to know how we as sinners can have forgiveness and eternal life. My prayer is that over the past two weeks, with Alan kicking off our study of the Gospel of John and me, of course, filling in for verse 16 to 13, my prayer is that we've already been impacted by this Gospel. My prayer is that we've already seen our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ put on tremendous display in this text. Let me give you a flyover of where we've been in case you weren't here with us the previous two weeks. And then we're going to dive into the, the capstone verses of verses 1 to 18, the capstone section of this prologue. We are going to see Christ in all of his glory today as we consider the the magnitude and the riches of Jesus' incarnation. I'm very excited to get into the weeds of this text with you. But just to remind you of where we've been, verse 1 to 5 of the introduction to John's gospel, we saw John describe Jesus as the source of creation. Jesus as the source of creation. That's what we covered in the first five verses of this letter. Second main heading or or second major section here in the first 18 verses of John's gospel. We examine from verse 6 to 13 how Jesus is the source of salvation. So Jesus is the source of creation. And because he's God and because he's the source of creation, it logically follows, as we saw last week, that Jesus provides salvation. Because he's the source of salvation, we are to go to no other than the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might be saved. But today, verses 14 to 18, those capstone verses of the Gospel of John, we're going to analyze a, a third picture or a third argument, a third perspective as to how Jesus is God and what Jesus as God does in order for sinners to have a relationship with God. Verses 14 to 18 could be summarized under this heading. If you're taking notes, Jesus is the source of God's grace. Jesus is the source of God's grace. Jesus is the source of creation, verses 1 to 5. Jesus is the source of salvation, verses 6 to 13. And Jesus is the source of God's grace, verses 14 to 18. When the Holy Spirit led the Apostle John to write verses 14 to 18, it's clear that the grace of God was embedded at the forefront of his mind. Not only does John use the word grace on four occasions throughout this section, in the original Greek, the the Greek term charis, it is the, 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 the most frequently used word in this section, verses 14 to 18. We have the word grace being emphasized by John, but if we really unpack this text as we'll do this morning, we see the concept of grace permeating everything that John writes. And really we've seen that over the past two messages as well. But today, as we look to these five verses closing out the introduction to John's gospel, we find God's marvelous grace revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ to reveal two primary confirmations. Two primary confirmations given by John as to how we can see Jesus as the source of God's grace. How does God's grace permeate this text and how is Jesus the source of that grace? Let me give those observations to you as we work our way through the text, starting with this first observation found in verse 14 and verse 18. Observation number one, how is Jesus the source of God's grace? Here's what I want us to note by 
way of subheading and by way of our preliminary observation. In verse 14 and 18, we find God's grace revealed in Jesus' incarnation. God's grace revealed in Jesus' incarnation as seen in verse 14 and verse 18. Look at those verses again with me in your Bible. And just so we're all on the same page, I think I made this point clear last week, but in case I didn't, anything that I say, we, we must examine it in accordance with God's word. Don't really take it as truth because I say it, although I, I clearly believe that what I'm telling you is true this morning. You always want to make sure you go to the text to ensure that what the preacher's saying is coming from God's word. So verse 14 and verse 18, God's grace revealed in Jesus's incarnation. Notice what John writes. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now you'll remember from last week, I'm sure that I I drew attention to the fact that many Christians can go through large portions of their Christian life recycling common Christian terms, using common Christian concepts, but really not have a working knowledge of what those terms and what those concepts actually mean. We throw around phrases such as the grace of God, the mercy of God, but I'll give you a perfect example. I had a group of students a few years back on a youth retreat, and I asked them, We just got done singing about the grace of God and the mercy of God. Do you you understand what those terms mean? What does grace mean? What does mercy mean? Not one of them could give me a definition. So we, we use terms all the time as Christians. We have common Christian cliches that we throw around, but sometimes we really don't know what we're saying. And that's okay. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we come to assemble together to make sure we can all be on the same page as to what we are confessing and what we are believing from the Word of God. I think the term incarnation falls under this umbrella. I mean, we we celebrate the incarnation every year for Christmas and Good Friday and Easter. But I think if you were to sit down with a lot of Christians and just ask them, what is the incarnation? What do we mean when we say that Jesus is the incarnate Word? I I think even amongst adults who've been to church for many years, they, they would say, you know, I just don't know. I've never really stopped to think about what this means. So today, my prayer is that I can maybe break down the the actual definition of the incarnation. What does it mean for Jesus to be incarnate? How have Christians understood this from the Word of God? How has Christians understood the incarnation throughout church history? And in light of those realities, the definition of incarnation and how Christians have thought about incarnation, how does this reveal God's grace? How do we see God's grace in Christ's incarnation? Hope that gives you a working uh, idea of where we're going today. Let's look at the definition. Let's start with the definition here of incarnation. What does it mean when we speak of Jesus being the incarnate word? Well, if you look at just the term itself, if you, if you were to just do a linguistic study, which it sounds really complex and technical, it's really not that hard. You just go to Google and look it up for yourself. Um, the word incarnation simply means in flesh. It comes from a Latin term meaning in flesh. So when we speak of Jesus as the incarnate word, we're just saying that the second person of the Trinity took on flesh. God in flesh. Verses 14 and 18 give us a clear illustration of how that transpires, does it not? Verse 14, 
The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's incarnation. That's why I mentioned this is the capstone verses of this introductory section. John is saying that the second person of the eternal trinity, he became a man. He took on flesh. In verse 18 as well, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he's explained, he's revealed, the the more precise uh, rendering of the Greek, he's exegeted. We talk about studying the Bible and doing expository preaching, taking out truth from the scriptures. That's what Jesus did with God. He, He revealed, he explained, he put God's glory and his grace and truth on such clear display that we could even speak of him exegeting the very nature and character of God the Father. That's what we mean when we talk about incarnation. It's the act by which God the Son, the eternal word and second person of the Trinity, took on a human nature to himself. So when we celebrate Christmas, when we celebrate Easter, Good Friday, even when we come here on each Sunday morning to worship, we're celebrating that mystery, that glorious and wondrous truth laid forth before us here in the opening verses of John's Gospel. Now, that also comes with a twist, does it not? I mean, if I were to ask you right now, and even myself, uh, having gone to seminary, having studied this text thoroughly this past week, if I were to ask you, explain to me all the mechanics of how the incarnation takes place. Would any of us be able to do that? No, of course we couldn't, right? I mean, if you find yourself here today and you really can't wrap your mind around, now how in the world did eternal God take on a human nature You're just never going to get there. It it far transcends the finite mind's ability to wrap its arms around the glory of God and the glory of the incarnation. That's part of the reason why we worship. The incarnation is not a problem to be solved. It is a mystery to be adored. It is to lead us to worship. It's to lead us to obedience. It's to lead us to glorify God in every aspect of our life. But having said that as well... There are some guardrails, there there are some ways in which Christians historically have sought to put up safeguards to ensure that there aren't erroneous or heretical ways of talking about the Incarnation throughout church history. We don't have time to embark upon a holistic study of how Christians have historically understood the Incarnation, but many of you guys uh, have noticed that there's a white booklet that I've passed out over uh, the course of this morning. Many of you received it during Sunday school. Some of you that came in later on, you probably received it because I handed it to you. But if you didn't get one, they're right there in that brown box on the table, right by the sound booth. little white booklet titled, The Ligonier Statement on Christology. Don't let the word Christology scare you. Ology means study. Christ means Messiah. The study of Christ. The study of Jesus. The Ligonier Statement on Christology. I've provided you with that booklet today for this primary reason. This booklet provides Christians in the 21st century with probably the simplest, clearest, and taking into consideration every other creed and confession that's been rendered throughout church history on the Incarnation. That document that I've given you, it synthesizes it. It simplifies it. It makes it to where you have a solid and accurate representation of how Christians have tried to confess this mystery revealed to us in Scripture. It doesn't tell you everything there is to know about the Incarnation. We have already established we can't plumb the depths of that truth. It, it doesn't tell us every nuance of why the Incarnation matters and how it can apply to our life, aside from the fact that it should lead us to worship and glorify and exalt God. But what that, what that document will do for you, 
And what it's done for me is I've read through it. And it's going to give you a very straightforward approach to ensure that what you confess about the incarnation from Scripture, that it doesn't fall into any pitfall of heresy or significant theological error. I wanted to give you a sampling of that booklet today. We, we don't have time to read through it all. We don't have time to go to all the scripture references. If you read the footnotes, there's literally dozens, maybe even hundreds of scripture references used to support the truth being confessed in that document. But I thought today as we reflect on verses 14 to 18 of John chapter 1, I thought that today it would be profitable if we took a step back and we stood in line shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the past 2,000 years of church history. And we said, how has the church, in light of the definition of incarnation, God in flesh, how has the church thought and confessed this incredible truth from Scripture? So please feel free to follow along in your copy of the booklet as I read some of the affirmations and denials. I'm just going to look at the first nine because the first nine in the affirmations and denial section specifically pertain to the incarnation. But on your own time this week, maybe in the weeks and months to come, because there's a lot of doctrine encapsulated in that booklet, spend some time. Go to Scripture. Use this as a discipleship tool. Use it as a means of exalting your heart to behold the glory of God revealed in the incarnation. But let's notice those nine opening articles affirmations and denials. I'm just going to read them straightforward. Please follow along. I hope this is an encouragement to you. That's why I provided this for you. I, I, I thought that including this in the sermon might be useful. Number one, we affirm that Jesus is the incarnation in history of the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is Christ, God's promised Messiah. We deny that Jesus Christ is a mere man or was a fictional creation of the early church. Number two, we affirm that in the unity of the Godhead, the eternally begotten Son is consubstantial. That just means same substance. He's of the same substance, he's co-equal, and he's co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. We deny that the Son is merely like God or that he was simply adopted by the Father as his Son. We deny the eternal subordination of the Son to the Father in the Trinity. Number three, we affirm with the Nicene and Chalcedonian creeds, those are 4th and 5th century confessions of faith on the Incarnation. We affirm with the Nicene and Chalcedonian creeds that Jesus Christ is both truly God and truly man, two natures united in one person forever. We deny that the Son was created. We deny that there was ever a time when the Son was not divine. We deny that the human body and soul of Jesus Christ existed prior to the incarnation of the Son in history. Fourth, we affirm the hypostatic or the personal union, that the two natures of Jesus Christ are united in His one person without mixture, confusion, division, or separation. We deny that to distinguish between the two natures is to separate them. Fifth, we affirm that in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, His divine and human natures retain their own abilities, or their own attributes, I should say. We affirm that the attributes of both natures belong to the one person of Jesus Christ. We deny that the human nature of Jesus Christ has divine attributes or can contain the divine nature. We deny that the divine nature communicates divine attributes to the human nature. We deny that the Son laid aside or gave up any of His divine attributes in the Incarnation. Sixthly, 
We affirm that Jesus Christ is the visible image of God, that he is the standard of true humanity, and that in our redemption, we will be ultimately conformed to his image. We deny that Jesus Christ was less than truly human, that he merely appeared to be human, or that he lacked a reasonable human soul. We deny that in the hypostatic union, that personal union, that the Son assumed a human person rather than a human nature. Seventh, we affirm that as truly man, Jesus Christ possessed in his state of humiliation all the natural limitations and common infirmities of human nature. We affirm that Jesus was made like us in all respects, yet he was without sin. We deny that Jesus Christ sinned. We deny that Jesus Christ did not truly experience suffering, temptation, or hardship. We deny that sin is inherent to true humanity or that the sinlessness of Jesus Christ is incompatible with his being truly human. Number eight, we affirm that the historical Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, was miraculously conceived and was born of the Virgin Mary. We affirm with the Chalcedonian Creed that she is rightly called Mother of God and that the child she bore is the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. We deny that Jesus Christ received his divine nature from Mary or that his sinlessness was derived from her. And lastly, number nine, we affirm that Jesus Christ is the last Adam who succeeded in his appointed task at every point where the first Adam failed and that Jesus Christ is the head of his people, the body of Christ. And we deny that Jesus Christ assumed a fallen human nature or that he inherited original sin. So my friends, this is a, I mean, it's a lot that I just gave you. It might feel like you're drinking from a fire hydrant. That's why I'd encourage you to read this on your own time, study it in your own time. But do you just hear all the echoes of Scripture? I mean, this, this is a saturated document. It's a confession of faith rooted and ground in the Word of God, and it's historically faithful. It's a historical representation of how Christians like you and me, centuries, even millennia ago, confessed this wonderful mystery that causes us to worship and serve our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So to bring us full circle now, we've looked at a definition of incarnation in flesh. God in flesh. We've provided you with a working representation of how Christians throughout the ages have gone to Scripture and said, this is what we mean and this is what we don't mean from Scripture about the incarnation. Now the ultimate question. How is God's grace revealed in the incarnation. How do these truths show us God's grace? Well, think back to how we defined grace during our time together last week. Many of you know grace is getting something you don't deserve to receive. Grace is unmerited and unearned favor. Therefore, when applied directly to Christ's incarnation, when, when directly applied to God's intervention with mankind... I believe that verse 18 and verse 14, those two texts that we've already looked at from our main text from John 1, it shows us an incredible way in which God's grace has been shed abroad to sinners like you and me. Notice, second half of verse 14. John says that those residing in the first century, they saw Jesus' glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the first half of verse 18, we find that Jesus is the personal self-revelation of God, despite the fact that no person has ever seen God at any other time in human history. 
Why is that significant? How does that reveal God's grace? Simply in this way, my friends. Despite our sin and our utter unworthiness, God has still chosen to reveal His glory, grace, and truth in the person of Christ. This is what we found in that document, uh, that doctrinal statement provided in the Ligonier Statement on Christology. This is what we see throughout the totality of Scripture. Just a few samplings. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. Romans 3.24, Jesus is the basis for God being able to justify and forgive sinners as an extension of His sovereign grace. John 14.6, Jesus is the literal personification of divine truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to God but through Him. Jesus is the self-revelation of God's glory, grace, and truth. How do we know that? He still came to this world despite our sin, our unworthiness, our judgment that we've incurred upon ourselves. Have you ever stopped to think about that? That when Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't just quit with humanity. He didn't just eradicate man from the face of the earth. He he didn't just say, I'm tired of these creatures I've made in my image. I'm done with them. Let me cast them into eternal judgment and just start over. I'm not going to strive with them forever. I don't want them anymore. It's not what God did, right? No, God slayed that animal in the garden. He clothed Adam and Eve with the animal skins as a picture of Christ's perfect righteousness, clothing, believing sinners like you and me. And he said, I'm going to send my only begotten son into the world at the appointed time in the fullness of time. He's going to come in and live the perfect life that man owes to me but has failed to render to me. He's going to die in their place, bearing my wrath and my judgment in their place. And I'm going to treat Christ as if he lived their life of sin and misery so that I can lavish them, those believers, those people that I will call to myself at the appointed time. I'm going to treat my own dear son like I should treat them so that I can treat those sinners as if they lived Christ's perfect life. They receive the treatment that Christ is worthy to be treated. They receive the gifts that Christ himself earned and merited in his life, death, and resurrection. And Christ gets all the filth and all the judgment that we ourselves are deserving of. God has entered into our world. God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. This is God's grace revealed in the incarnation. He sent Jesus, and he didn't have to. He'd have been perfectly just, just casting us away forever. And he's given us a way to not only be forgiven, but to be regarded as sons and daughters in Christ. I hope that's a rich encouragement uh, for you from this text. God's perfect provision and source of grace provided through the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're a believer, celebrate that. Reflect on that truth when you go through hardships in this life or you experience setbacks in your faith. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, what are you waiting for? He's done everything and more than you could ever need to know God. Come to Christ. Receive the source of God's grace by faith. Well, up to this point in our lesson, we've taken a deep dive into that first observation, that first confirmation of Jesus being the source of God's grace. We looked at verse 14 and 18 to see that. 
There's a second observation. There's a second confirmation about Jesus as the source of God's grace. Observation number two, confirmation number two from our text, found in verses 15 to 17. Notice how God's grace is revealed in Jesus' mission. So we saw God's grace revealed in Jesus' incarnation, verses 14 and 18, verses 15 to 17. God's grace revealed in Jesus' mission. Let's read those verses again. Please follow along in your copy of God's Word. Let's see it in the text before I unpack it for us a bit. Verse 15. John testified about Jesus and he cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. In these three verses, we find four unique aspects of Jesus' mission during the Incarnation, which are ultimately intended to point our eyes upward to God's glory and God's grace revealed in His mission. I was so excited to share these with you today because I was so blessed reflecting on how God's grace is revealed in this passage. I can only pray that your hearts feel the same way as we consider these from the text. Let's look at observation number one, or Confirmation number one, depending on which adjective you prefer. First, observation or confirmation of God's grace revealed in Jesus' mission. Look at this. Verse 15. The vast majority of the, t- of the verse, except for the last clause in verse 15. Jesus' mission is superior to John the Baptist. Jesus' mission is superior to John the Baptist. Based on the context of the first 18 verses of John's gospel... We remember from last week, this John that's being referenced in verse 15 is the same John that we talked about last week in our study of verses 6 to 13. It's not a different John. John, the son of Zebedee, who wrote the Gospel of John, he's not introduced in a new figure. We look at this text in context. He is referring back to John the Baptist, who was mentioned in verse 16 through 13. So with that in mind... We're going to learn more about who John the Baptist was and what his significance was as the forerunner to the Messiah when Alan preaches on verses 19 to 34 over the next couple weeks. But for our time today, I want us to zero in on one key aspect of John the Baptist's mission and will probably be a good segue into where Alan's going to go over the next couple weeks. Notice that, that clause there in verse 15. That reveals John the Baptist's understanding of his mission. If you were to ask John the Baptist, why are you here? What what is your mission? And how is it inferior to Christ? How is Christ's mission superior to your mission, John? Look what he says. He who comes after me has a higher rank than I. And, And this is coming from a man who had the privilege of preparing Israel for the revelation of the Messiah. He was sent on a God-ordained mission to prepare the nation of Israel for the incarnation. He was greatly esteemed, so much so that even the false religious leaders of Judaism, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they came out to him to see what he was all about. This was a man highly esteemed and lauded. And people were intrigued by him in the first century. And look at what he says. He who comes after me has a higher rank than I. Flip over with me to John 3, verses 26 to 30. This is remarkable humility. And this is who John the Baptist was. He had a proper understanding 
of what his purpose was, what his mission was, coming to prepare Israel for her Messiah. John chapter 3, verses 26 to 30 says this. And John the Baptist's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Well, they're essentially saying, what are we going to do, John? That, that Jesus guy who, who you baptized, he's, he's stealing away all of our friends, all of your disciples. Your, your ministry is shrinking. Your effectiveness is dwindling. Maybe we should break out the, the, the colored lights and the smoke machine. We can get some more people to come, right? No, that's, that's not what happened. Um, notice how John comes back to their concern. Your, your ministry is diminishing, John. Well, John answered. He said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the, the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase and I must decrease. That's the humility of John the Baptist, my friends. That should likewise be the humility that we model as we consider our role and our responsibility within the kingdom of God. Although it's certainly true that God has gifted all of his people for the purpose of edifying the body of Christ. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you have at least one spiritual gift. One or more spiritual gifts that God has given you for the purpose of edifying the local church and evangelizing a lost world. You have something that God's given you as a gift of His grace to do those things and to do them well, to be a good steward of them. So although that's true, we must never seek, and you, myself, all Christians must never seek to exalt themselves, exalt their gifts, exalt their roles in the church at the expense of exalting Jesus Christ. God gave a tremendous amount of grace to John the Baptist. He had a special mission. Jesus said that he's the greatest of all men in the Old Covenant. He was was at the upper echelon of God's kingdom purposes. He received grace upon grace. Many of you here today have been believers for decades, and God's worked tremendously through you. You have received grace upon grace. But, my friends, just as John the Baptist's mission was inferior to Christ, so also is your mission and my mission and your calling and my calling and your gifts and my gifts. They are all inferior to Christ. They are only a means by which you are to point others to Christ so that they might feast on Him and that they might be enamored with His glory and that lost and perishing sinners might come to know Him through faith. Jesus must increase. You and I must decrease. His mission, His kingdom, it will always be superior to our own. That's observation number one from the text. Observation number two. Confirmation number two about God's grace revealed in Jesus' mission. Notice the last clause of verse 15. I believe this final clause... At the end of verse 15, John the Baptist proclaiming, Jesus existed before me. It reveals Jesus' mission as being rooted in eternity past. Jesus' mission being rooted in eternity past. This is another remarkable evidence from John's gospel that Jesus is God. 
We find in Luke chapter 1, verses 35 to 36, that John the Baptist was at least six months older than Jesus as the God-man. John the Baptist was born at least six months before Jesus as the God-man being born of Mary. So we know by necessary consequences, when John the Baptist says that he existed before I did, he has a higher rank than me, he's not speaking in terms of their existence in the world. He's speaking in terms of Jesus being God. He's saying that Jesus had something that he had to accomplish that goes as far back as the mind could ever comprehend and beyond, namely the very eternal triune council itself. God himself in eternity past had a special mission for Jesus. It was not only to be superior to John the Baptist's mission and to all missions that would ever be carried out by Christians, but it also started before any other mission was given. This is the first mission, the supreme mission that Christ was to carry out. Notice John chapter 17, verses 4 to 5. We get a small glimpse into some of the the riches of Christ's mission in eternity past. Notice that text. If you have your Bible, flip there really quickly. See it in the text. Don't just take my word for it. Jesus clearly knew. Don't ever make the mistake that we talked about last week. The state of theology survey. All these self-identifying Christians that say, Jesus, he was a good moral teacher. He was a good example. But he wasn't God. He wasn't eternal. Don't make that mistake. And don't ever believe that Jesus didn't have a working conception of his deity and of his mission. John 17 is a key text to reveal otherwise. Verse 4 and 5, John 17. This is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus given literally hours before he would be crucified. He says, Jesus praying to the Father, I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus had glory with the Father before the world was. He had a mission given to him by the Father before the world was, and that mission was to be superior to every kingdom purpose and every kingdom mission that would ever be carried out in this world throughout human history. My friends, think about the glory of that truth. In eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, He had a plan to exalt His holy character through our redemption. You and I, if you're in Christ today, God loved you from before the foundation of the world so much that He sent Jesus, God in flesh, to die for you, live for you, be raised for you, and then to gift you with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1.3. That should lead you to worship and celebrate the grace of God. Notice what Paul also confirms on this truth in Galatians 4, 4 and 5. In Galatians 4, 4 and 5, he says that Jesus came in the fullness of time. He came to this world at the perfect moment in time as appointed by the Father from before the foundation of the world so that he could carry out his mission, his superior mission, his gracious mission, his glorious mission. We celebrate that every time we come together as God's people. The testimony of Scripture and the testimony of the Gospel of John is that Jesus is eternal God in human flesh. He was sent into this world 
on a mission to redeem us. So what does that mean practically? I've just given you a concept of eternity that none of us can wrap our minds around and never will. What does this mean on my day-to-day life? What does this mean when I'm at the grocery store? What does this mean when I'm at work? What does this mean if I'm a stay-at-home mom with kids or grandkids? How does this shape my thinking and my life? Well, practically, it means that the grace of God was at the heart of Jesus' incarnation, and He prepared you and me to receive that grace at the appointed moment in time so that you might be a worshiper of God and that you might take that grace to other people, that you might share it with a world that is lost and dying and wasting away. Alan mentioned, we see it on the news, this world needs God's grace and we are the ones who've been entrusted to take it everywhere that God gives us opportunities to do so. So, that brings us to the third aspect of Jesus' mission that he had during his incarnation. Third observation or confirmation of God's grace being revealed in Jesus' mission. Notice this. Jesus' mission is thoroughly gracious in nature. Jesus' mission is not just gracious in nature. It's thoroughly gracious in nature. How to put thoroughly in there? Because he just... This is a super abounding gift that God has given humanity. You've got to put every superlative before it. You can't even get close to scratching the surface. It's remarkable. Verse 16. I found this interesting as I was preparing for today. Um, I'm not a Greek scholar. I have some good tools. I've studied Greek a little bit. But um, in verse 16, to really get the flavor of what John's writing, John, the son of Zebedee, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16 If we were to look at it in its original composition, it would say this. For from his fullness, referring to Jesus, from his fullness, we have all received one gracious gift after another. And and the word picture that's being used there is it's like a fountain that just continues to, to flow over and over and over. And there's just no end to it. One gracious gift after another. That's what Jesus has given us. If you're in Christ today, you have been the recipient of one gracious gift after another. And think about it from John's perspective for a minute. Let's go back. Let's take a a road trip back some 2,000 years to John's perspective, his life in the first century world. When the Apostle John wrote this gospel in the first century, many scholars believe it was sometime between 60 and 90 AD. There's a lot of debate on the exact dating But it was at the end of the first century, the latter part of the first century. And most scholars and historians would agree that John was the last apostle. He's seen all of his older contemporaries either killed or or, or they've been um, persecuted to the point of having to go into exile. And then they just died of old age. He has seen all of the original apostles dead. But notice this. He also, though he was all alone, he's the last apostle alive. By this time, he's seen tens and tens of thousands of Roman pagans. People throughout the Roman Empire that worshipped a plurality of gods, wanted nothing to do with Christianity, some of whom probably put Christ to death, and they've been saved. They've been gripped by the grace of God. He has seen one gracious gift after another, after another dispensed to him, and dispensed to an entire world, the whole known world at that point. He's seeing the world turned upside down by the grace 
of God revealed in Jesus Christ as proclaimed through the testimony of the gospel. That's why I noted that Jesus' mission is thoroughly gracious in nature. John died. He, he, he died seeing the impact that the gospel had on the world, and he dies knowing. Same John who wrote the book of Revelation. He dies knowing. Jesus is going to save a multitude of sinners from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And they, like him, you and me, just as much as John, we get to receive that grace upon grace upon grace as we live out the Christian life faithfully. We get to see how it's worked in our life. We get to see how it's worked in the life of our co-workers that come to faith in Christ, our family members who come to faith in Christ. Lord willing, a significant political figure or somebody who has a lot of say-so in the affairs of our society, see how God could work through them should they come to Christ, as he's done in previous eras of human history through civil officials and those of high ranking in society. Grace upon grace upon grace. Jesus' mission is thoroughly gracious in nature. Through Christ, through faith in him, through receiving him as Lord and Savior, Substance abusers are made sober. Adulterers are made sexually pure. Broken relationships and broken families are made whole. Anger is turned to joy. Heartache is turned to contentment. Disobedient spirits are made submissive. And the weight, burden, and penalty of sin is cast as far as the east is from the west for all of eternity future. If you would turn to Jesus, if sinners would turn to Jesus, they would receive grace upon grace upon grace because his mission is superior. His kingdom is forever and he will save his own to the uttermost and he will renew them from the inside out. Well, there's a fourth and final aspect of Jesus's mission that I want us to observe from our text and then we'll close in prayer. Observation, confirmation number four of how God's grace has been revealed in Jesus' mission. Notice verse 17. Jesus' mission is the goal of God's law. Jesus' mission is the goal of God's law. The clearest and most complete revelation of God's grace and God's truth, it's been revealed through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's what John is saying here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And how do we know that to be the case? Was not God gracious in every previous generation throughout human history? Did God not provide truth throughout the course of Old Testament history? He gave them the Old Testament scriptures. He's had a people from Genesis 3.15 onward. How how is there some difference here with the coming of Jesus? Well, my friends, in Christ, in a a way that's special for us looking back some 2,000 years... We see in full clarity what the Old Testament saints looked forward to as they awaited the coming of the Messiah. We looking back to everything Jesus was and everything that Jesus did, we found this to be the case, my friends, that Jesus Christ accomplished for sinners what the Mosaic law could not do. Think about about if you were residing in Old Covenant Israel. And you knew, you were a believer, you knew God was going to provide his Messiah. You didn't know when, but he's promised over and over and over again. The Messiah's coming. He's coming. I trust in the coming Messiah. I know I'm saved, but man, this is a really cumbersome way of approaching religion. We've got to make all these sacrifices. We have all these dietary laws. We have all these ceremonial rituals. God's even killed a few people that didn't do them right. This is hard work. 
When will we find the ultimate culmination and consummation of rest? Where we can just rest in God's grace. My friends, it was in the incarnation that that took place. And has been the case for the past 2,000 years now. Post-resurrection. Post-incarnation, life, death, and resurrection. Notice this. We know that the Mosaic Law is good. It's holy. Romans 7, 12 affirms that. But we find in Romans 8, 3... That no sinner can be justified by the law. We find in Galatians 3, verses 22 to 24. Turn there, please. Turn there with me in your Bibles if you you still have them handy. This is a key text for this reality. How is God's grace superior, better, more soul-fulfilling in many respects on this side of the cross than prior to the cross? Notice what the Apostle Paul emphasizes in Galatians 3, 22 to 24, you're going to find that what he's saying is this. Old covenant believers, when they looked at themselves in light of God's law, they realized, I am in desperate need for grace. I need rest for my soul. When's Jesus, when's the Messiah coming? They didn't know Jesus by name. When is Christ, the Messiah, coming? Galatians 3, 22 to 24. Notice this. Great text. Paul writes, the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law, this is key, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. My friends, throughout Old Covenant history, the law simply showed Old Covenant believers this, though perfect and holy and good and given by God as a manifestation of His grace, it doesn't give me the rest for my soul that I need. It's hard. It's cumbersome. Messiah hasn't come yet. And in many cases, these believers would face exile. It is a hard time to be faithful to the God of my salvation. That would have crept into the mind of many old covenant believers. My friends, we're on the other side of the cross. We see in full clarity what they looked forward to in anticipation. We found that Christ has come. And when we look to the law, we say, yes, we all fall short of the glory of God. Yes, we can never perfectly obey God in and of ourselves. We can't earn salvation. But Christ has come. And I know with every fiber of my being, as we talked or as we sang about earlier this morning, This I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. I know that a sacrifice has been made. I know that I'm adopted son or daughter in Christ. I know that everything I could ever need has been lavished to me as an extension of God's grace. My friends, this is why we worship. This is why we celebrate Jesus' mission as the goal of God's law. I want to close by saying this. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ... I pray that this week you would do two things. Number one, read the Ligonier Statement on Christology in light of everything we've talked about today during the sermon. Go to the Scriptures. See God's glory revealed in the Incarnation. Saturate your mind with the truths we've talked about, many of which are going to be far beyond your ability to comprehend. That's okay. Remember, the Incarnation, it's not a problem to be solved. It's a mystery to be adored. That's the mindset we've got to have as we think about this. Don't just let Christmas and Good Friday and Easter, Resurrection Sunday, don't just let those be the only times you really think about the Incarnation. So that's the first thing, believer. Read that doctrinal statement. Read that booklet I've given you. 
be encouraged by it. Number two, when you face hard times this week or in the months to come, celebrate God's grace. Reflect on it. Think about all that he's done for you. Think about how much he's loved you. A love that had no beginning, literally. A love that goes as far back into eternity past and even beyond our ability to even think about that conceptually. Maybe you're here today, though, and you're an unbeliever. Maybe you feel conviction. Maybe you realize, I have no rest for my soul. I, I haven't received God's grace. You keep talking about how rich it is, how, how thoroughly gracious Jesus is. What can I do? How can I know this, this joy and this peace and this forgiveness that you keep talking about? Yelling about, maybe. I know I'm quite loud sometimes. My friends, anyone here who's not a believer, all you need to do is believe. Jesus has said, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. You don't have to do anything. There's no work that you could ever perform that would be good enough. There's nothing you could ever do to earn or deserve God's grace. It's a gift to be received by faith. If anyone has any questions about how that can be done, what that looks like, God might be working in your heart even now. Find me, find Gordon, find Melvin, find Alan, find one of the men of the church. We'd be more than happy to to point you to Scripture and ultimately point you to Christ in any way that we can. But I hope and pray that this has been an encouragement to your soul. Let's close in prayer. And then we'll draw our lesson to a conclusion. Father in heaven, your grace, it superabounds to us. It, it superabounds to all of creation. It's a rich testimony to your infinite kindness. And although we've, we heard Alan say this morning by way of introduction, and as, as I've mentioned on a few occasions today in my sermon, there's nothing we could do to earn or deserve your grace. There, there's nothing we could give to you to add to your excellency or to make ourselves pleasing in your sight, all we can do, Father, is turn to the one where your grace is supremely manifested, the one who is the source of your grace, none other than Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that as we consider the links you've gone to enable us to have a personal saving relationship with him, Lord, I pray that that would cause us to adore you with greater delight, that we, that we would just be overwhelmed as we think about your character and your grace. And Father, I, I do pray as well for, for anyone here today who does not know Christ. Anyone here today, even as I pray now, Father, they, they just feel a stir possibly in their soul. And I, I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in their heart, that you would bring them to salvation, give them the rest that they crave, the rest and the joy and the peace that we have received in our souls as the means of your grace and having come to saving faith in Christ, give that to them. Even today, Father, we ask on their behalf and give them boldness to come, seek any counseling that, that they need, clarity um, about your word or about the gospel. May this church, may Lifeway Baptist Church truly be a refuge of your grace and revelation of your character through how we worship and how we love one another, how we interact with one another, and how we go into this community and represent your kingdom as your ambassadors. Father, we ask you to be with us now as we bring our worship to a conclusion here, that you would bless us as we leave this, this place and return to our homes and as we prepare for another week of accomplishing your purposes where you called us, help us to be good and faithful servants on mission for your kingdom and your glory. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.